This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From ABC News, this is the 2021 Year in Review. Police, we now know, are saying that protesters have broken through into the first floor of the Capitol building. That is Join pretty us as we look back at some of the top stories as they were originally reported. We, the jury, in the above-entitled matter as to count one, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. At this time, we know that 12 U.S. service members have been killed in the attack. I think that given the circumstances... The best way I can help now is if I step aside. It's a very dangerous site right now. It's very, I'm not a fireman, but what I know from listening to the briefings, it's very unstable, very dangerous. And those the first part. count of the information, Joseph Rosenbaum. We, the jury, find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty. Here is ABC News correspondent Alex Stone. Welcome to you and happy holidays. We begin this hour with a history-changing moment. 2021 started out with hope. Vaccines were finally going into the arms of Americans and maybe it would be the year we got back to normal. But the year started with a lot of anger in this country. A large and vocal group of Americans believed without any actual proof and mainly theories, rumors and conspiracies that the election had been stolen from President Trump. It was that anger that presented itself on January 6th, only days into the new year. Rioters at a Stop the Steal rally went marching to the Capitol, banging on the doors, breaking windows, and then getting inside, all while a joint session of Congress was certifying the election for now President Biden. Debate over what happened that day and what it was continues on both sides. Now our coverage from January 6th. I hope Mike is going to do the right thing. I hope so. I hope so. Because if Mike Pence does the right thing, we win the election. The House will be in order. Are there any objections to counting the certificate of vote of the state of Arizona that the teller has verified appears to be regular in form and authentic? Mr. Vice President, I, Paul Gosar from Arizona. For what Sports purpose does the gentleman from Arizona rise? I rise for myself and 60 of my colleagues to object to the uh, counting of the electoral ballots from Arizona. We're going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I love Pennsylvania. And we're going to the Capitol. Online images of Trump flag carrying supporters pushing, shoving Capitol Hill police, many overturning barriers and climbing the platforms built for Joe Biden's inaugural ceremony this month. The Capitol Hill which, police you know, is a, a totally rare moment in the Capitol. The, the, it was emergency, emergency, emergency. You know, the, the you know, the barricade, you know, shelter in place. If you can't, the Capitol police you know, officer took to that stage where we saw Vice President Mike Pence. Uh, and said the Capitol has been breached, and he urged them all to stay where they are. So this is a real nightmare scenario unfolding. Uh, so many entrances and tunnels and mazes, mazes, exits in and out of the Capitol that could be breached right now. There was even a plan at one point to huddle, to, to hustle all of us down um, to the Senate chamber. And, uh, you know, and, and if you can imagine all of us being on the Senate, you know. 
The Senate and House forced to recess after pro-Trump protesters have stormed up to the U.S. Capitol, breaking into the Capitol building. Democratic leader Steny Hoyer of Maryland and GOP whip Steve Scalise were evacuated by their security details. According to reporters in the chamber, the gallery doors have also been locked. Other members were... The president were had certainly stoked some of this in recent weeks, encouraging people to come to Washington. The president of December 19th tweeting, big protest in D.C. January 6th. Be there. Will be wild. And it now probably will be needed to bring in the National Guard to secure the Capitol because the president has instigated a riot. Unbelievable. I can't tell you what a scary feeling it is. The, uh, the protesters have made it to the third floor uh, above the Senate chamber, and, and they're not far from us. I have colleagues who are um, holding up in, in the hideaway offices or some, some senators. Reports of shots fired at the U.S. Capitol as rioters have breached the Capitol building, forcing Congress to recess from counting electoral votes. Well, we had uh, stormed into the, the chambers inside, and there was a young lady who rushed through the windows. A number of police and Secret Service were saying, get back, get down, get out of the way. She didn't heed the call, and as we kind of raced up to grab people and pull them back, they shot her in the neck, and she fell back on me and started saying she was fine, it's cool, and then she started kind of like moving weird and blood was coming out of her mouth and neck and nose and I don't know if she's alive or dead. I've been spending the last 25 minutes or so trying to get the president on the phone myself um, to say this to him directly. Um, I haven't been successful yet, um, but I'm going to continue to try. And I'm talking to sources who are close to the president. It's not just Chris Christie who can't get through. We're talking about people uh, who are normally in the president's inner circle, people who are close to the president inside the White House and out who cannot get through the president. And I will tell you, the source is describing this to me as real concern right now among those who are close to President Trump about how to get through to him. I condemn any of this. This is appalling. This is un-American. Um, this should never happen in our nation. And whatever is going on right now has needs to stop. I call on President Trump go on national television now to fulfill his oath and defend the Constitution and demand an end to this Just siege. hours after the president told supporters to march to Capitol Hill, he took to Twitter to tell them to stop the destruction and violence there. It was a landslide election, and everyone knows it, especially the other side. But you have to go home now. We have to have peace. The president still insisting the election was stolen, but that he understands why his supporters are angry and hurt. They are trespassing at best. They are looting and rioting and uh, committing acts of terror at worst. Uh, there has been violence already. The president does not seem to be acknowledging that. Uh, I, I feel like this is a half-hearted attempt uh, at best to try to get these crowds to disperse and go home. Some lawmakers say they don't know when, but they intend to finish the electoral vote count and certification at the Capitol tonight. Senator Joe Manchin, West Virginia Democrat, telling reporters. In the, in the Capitol tonight? building? Well, we sure hope so. We'll say whatever it takes. These thugs aren't running us off. Speaker now, Pelosi saying they will continue the electoral count through the night and as long as it takes, saying this historic day gave the world a shameful picture of the country that was instigated at the highest level. From looking at some of the video and, and from hearing some of the reports, it seems like a lot of these people showed up with an intent to commit violence. So, you know, that signals to me that this was more of a coordinated effort than a, a spontaneous 
uh, a spontaneous display of, of exuberance. In President Trump's video put out during the height of the unrest at the Capitol, he told people to go home, but he also continued to make unproven claims about the election. Facebook and Twitter have removed the video, calling it an emergency situation, saying the platforms prohibit incitement and calls for violence. Twitter initially left up the video without the ability to like, respond, or retweet it. Then it removed the video along with a follow-up tweet from the president. Just hours after members of the House and the Senate took cover and then were evacuated after armed protesters stormed the building, they're getting back to work to count and eventually certify President-elect Joe Biden's Electoral College win. We condemn the violence that took place here in the strongest possible Now terms. we're going to finish exactly what we started. We'll complete the process the right way by the book. We'll follow our precedents, our laws, and our Constitution. President Franklin Roosevelt set aside December 7, 1941, as a day that will live in infamy. Unfortunately, we can now add January 6, 2021, to that very short list of dates in American history that will live forever. In infamy. When I arrived in Washington this morning, I fully intended to object to the certification of the electoral votes. However, the events that have transpired today have forced me to reconsider. We must and we will show to the country and indeed to the world that we will not be diverted from our duty. This is a special report from ABC News. I'm Richard Cantu. The congressional challenges to certification of Joe Biden's election are over. The last challenge in the House to Pennsylvania's slate of electors was rejected. The other five challenges were either rejected or failed for lack of support. In a joint session of Congress, the certification process resumed, and the president-elect now has the Electoral College votes to become the 46th president. The final hurdle, he'll be inaugurated in 13 days. The votes for president of the United States are as follows. Joseph R. Biden, Jr., of the state of Delaware has received 306 votes. Donald J. Trump of the state of Florida has received 232 votes. His actions on May 25th of 2020 sparked a nationwide movement for social justice. Former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was charged in the killing of George Floyd. This April, his day in court came, and after a nearly three-week trial and 10 hours of deliberation, the jury ruled Chauvin was guilty on April 20th. We bring you back to our coverage of that day. Good afternoon. We are about to hear the verdict in the case against Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer charged in the death of George Floyd. Jurors in Hennepin County, Minnesota, deliberated about 10 hours over two days before sending word to Judge Peter Cahill they had made a decision. We, the jury, in the above-entitled matter as to count one, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty as to count two, third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty matter as to count three, second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk, find the defendant guilty. Derek Chauvin in a light gray jacket, white shirt, and blue tie had on a light blue mask, so his face was indiscernible. There was no apparent reaction from the former Minneapolis police officer as the jury's guilty verdicts were read, but there was instant reaction outside the courthouse in Minneapolis. Let's get straight to ABC's Mark Remillard. Mark. 
as soon as that first verdict came down, and of course, the most significant penalty for Derek Chauvin, the second degree unintentional murder charge. When the word came down that the verdict was guilty, this crowd erupted and has continued to cheer. Uh, we have heard them screaming uh, justice for George Floyd in the wake of this. Uh, and as we now know as well, guilty on all three charges, not just the most significant charge, but all three. Uh, this crowd cheering at the reaction to that. We heard instantaneous reaction from members of George Floyd's family. They were watching in Houston, Texas. Count one, court file number 27, CR 20-12646. We the jury in the above entitled matter as to count one, unintentional second degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. A celebration in Houston, Texas, where members of the Floyd family were watching as the verdicts were read. Good afternoon, everyone. Keith Ellison, the Attorney General of Minnesota, is now speaking. I would not call today's verdict justice, however, because justice implies true restoration. But it is accountability which is the first step towards justice. The Reverend Al Sharpton is also gathered with his supporters. We don't find pleasure in this. We don't celebrate a man going to jail. We would have rather George be alive. In Minneapolis, Al Sharpton is handing off to Ben Crump. America, let's frame this moment as a moment where we finally are getting close to living up to our declaration of independence, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equally, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that amongst them are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Where America- We know that members of the Floyd family spoke a moment ago with President Biden and Vice President Harris. Hopefully this is the momentum for the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act to get passed to have you signed. We gotta have that and a lot more. Not just that, a lot more. Thank you, Mr. President. ABC's Janelle Klein is with us uh, from Minneapolis, uh, surrounded by a crowd, Janelle, that uh, shows no sign of going home as the celebration of the verdict continues. Yeah, they're very happy to be here. The crowd is growing. There was probably several hundred people gathered in George Floyd Square as the verdict was read, and that number keeps increasing as people are joining the crowd, celebrating, talking about the verdict. I think a lot of people were very concerned about what the result would be and certainly didn't have a lot of faith in many cases that he would be found guilty on all three counts. Um, so it, for many people, this is exactly the kind of justice they were hoping for, and, and they really are pleased to see the outcome of this trial. George Floyd's brother, Polonis, is now speaking. It's been a long journey, and it's been less than a year. And the person that comes to my mind is 1955. And to me, he was the first George Floyd. Mm. That, was, that was Emma Till. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I did, uh, was on CNN with Deborah Watts, and she just brought him back to life. Wow. People forgot about him. Yeah. But he was the first George Floyd. Yeah. But today, you have the cameras all around the world to see and show what happened to my brother. 
It was a motion picture, the world seeing his life being extinguished. And I could do nothing but watch, especially in that courtroom over and over and over again as my brother was murdered. Terrence Floyd now speaking in Minneapolis. I'm just grateful. I'm grateful that my grandmother, my mother, my aunts, they just got to see this history made. I'm even great. I'm, I'm grateful my brother's not here. I'm grateful and I'm proud of him. While members of the Floyd family and their supporters react to the news, so does the governor of Minnesota, Tim Walls. He had called out the National Guard in preparation, and he is addressing his state now. And they demanded it. A year later, Eric Chauvin is behind bars and faces years in prison. But we know that accountability in the courtroom is only the very first step. True justice for George Floyd will come through real systemic change to prevent this from ever happening again. When every member President Biden stepping to the podium now at the White House, his first reaction publicly to the death of George Floyd and the conviction now of Derek Chauvin. It was a murder in the full light of day, and it ripped the blinders off for the whole world to see the systemic racism the vice president just referred to. The systemic racism is a stain on our nation's soul. <clears throat> the knee on the neck of justice for black Americans. Profound fear and trauma. The pain, the exhaustion that black and brown Americans experience every single day. The murder of George Floyd launched a summer of protest we hadn't seen since the civil rights era in the 60s. Protests that unified people of every race and generation in peace and with purpose to say enough, enough, enough of this senseless killings. Up next, remembering 9-11 20 years later. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the 2021 Year in Review from ABC News. Join us as we look back at some of the top stories as they were originally reported. Once again, 
Here is ABC News correspondent Alex Stone. This September, the nation marked a solemn milestone, 20 years since the attacks on 9-11. For some of those who lost loved ones who meant growing up without a mom or a dad, others lost husbands, wives, or children, ABC's Aaron Katursky has some of their stories from our special 9-11, 20 years later. Moira Smith was the only female NYPD officer who died on 9-11. Her daughter Patricia was only two. We spoke to her at the reflecting pool of the 9-11 memorial. It wasn't so much of, oh, I lost Moira Smith. It was like, I lost my mom, like a figure. So it was a little more difficult for me because... I was always upset about how everyone else got to experience her, but I never did. And so, um, sorry, (laughs) it was hard to kind of hear everyone else's stories, but I didn't get that for myself. Units, remove yourselves from the location. ISS person, remove yourselves from the location at this time. We got another tower collapsed. Another tower collapse. Officer Moira Smith is thought to have been the first to radio in the plane hitting the North Tower. She immediately gathered eyewitnesses and then ran back to help people evacuate. This is the South Tower. Um, the South Tower is where my mom ended up being. That was her last stop, I guess you could call it, after her many destinations on 9-11. Officers that are on the scene over there. suffering and I have to live with that and my family has to live with that but I also think it's something that's really important for other people to listen to or hear because especially 20 years later I think we kind of get lost in what the day was and how it actually played out and how it felt for a lot of people. Listen we got a female officer down we need a, we need a search. Are you okay? Brett Eagleson was 15 when his dad, Bruce, was overseeing the redevelopment of a shopping mall at the bottom of the World Trade Center. When the plane hit, he called to say he was fine and would evacuate once he helped his employees get out. At the 9-11 memorial mass that we had for him uh, a few weeks after 9-11, someone came up to my mother and said, I'm alive today because of what your husband did. He's really someone to be proud of, but at the same time, I think the selfish side of us wishes that he just walked out the front door like a lot of other people did that day. All 10 people Bruce Eagleson supervised made it out. He did not. You know, it's been really tough because it's a bittersweet memory of my dad. You know, he had every opportunity that he could have to get out of the building. It's almost, you know, the selfish part of me wonders why didn't he just get out? But then, you know, the proud part of us is, you know, he really did die a hero that day. The Eaglesons are among 1,100 families who share an unwanted bond. 
Their loved ones died at the World Trade Center, but have not been formally identified. We've never recovered him, uh, not, not even a trace. Many of the human remains recovered in the wreckage were damaged by jet fuel and fire. But the New York City Office of the Chief Medical Examiner made a solemn promise to identify as many as possible. In the last two decades, DNA technology has improved and forensic scientists are still trying. My family, along with many other families, are still waiting on remains to be found. And that, again, added to the pain and misery that day is that we're still waiting for a word. But at some point, you sort of just have to make a decision to accept the fact that he's lost. As United States has been battling the coronavirus pandemic, there is another health crisis that the country continues to fight, gun violence. From January to September, there were over 6,500 murders in the United States, according to the Major Cities Chiefs Association, an organization of police chiefs who represent the largest cities in the country. During the same period in 2020, there are around 5,900. And our nation's children are living and dying with guns. ABC's Michelle Friends in on what this is doing to our kids from our Gun Violence in America special. In Watertown, Connecticut, about 26 miles from the side of the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting, the squeak of a swing's chain and kids like little Alessandra at play. This playground has special significance, built in honor of Don Lafferty Hawksprung, the principal of Sandy Hook Elementary, one of six adults and 20 first and second grade students shot and killed in December 2012. A mass shooting and this time gunfire aimed at elementary school children. This was dedicated to really all of the children and the teachers, but in particular, Dawn Hawksprung. This is celebrating Dawn's life and her love of teaching. Bill Lavin heads up the construction of those playgrounds for the charitable organization where angels play. There's 20 swings that represent the, the special number of the children, and then the six other riding toys represent the educators. 27-year-old first grade teacher Vicki Soto lost her own life protecting her students from the gunman. She was my, my right hand. Carlos Soto is the father of Victoria Soto, known to her family and friends as Vicki. As a teacher, she always told us that she wanted to be special different than other teachers. Carlos says the inaction on gun violence following Sandy Hook is painful for him and his family. Like my son said, when he went to Washington a couple years ago when they had the shooting in Florida, he said it was seven years ago my sister was killed and nothing has been done. What has changed? The drill we need to lock a generation of K-12 through students growing up in the wake of the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting now preparing for the possibility of a shooting at their school, even if they don't know it. We pretended there was a bear. That's six-year-old Liam telling his mom, Tara, an ABC News producer, about his recent drill. We have to go down um, and hide. A layer of innocence lost, no matter the age. And a new norm, says 19-year-old Hannah Jack. I could see, like, the pain in their face and, like, this how scared they were when, like, the alarms would go off. And it, it scared me, too, you know? She was in fifth grade when the Sandy Hook shooting happened. That was life at that point. Like, it didn't really dawn on me that it was anything different. That is the reality of America. There's 400 million-plus guns in this country. Gun violence can affect a family or a child's life at any time. John Woodrow Cox is the author of Children Under Fire, an American Crisis. Cox estimates during a single school year, 4 to 8 million kids experience lockdowns. Even when they turned out to be false alarms, they leave their mark. And a meaningful number of that 4 to 8 million kids thought, at least momentarily, that they might get shot to death in their school. And we know that because they text their parents goodbye, they write wills saying who they want their toys to go to, 
they soil themselves, they weep. It's not just at school where children are at risk of gun violence. In the search for the gunman in the shooting that killed a six-year-old little girl in Just Washington. weeks ago, six-year-old Naya Courtney was struck and killed by a bullet while riding her scooter on a sidewalk in southeast Washington, D.C. Her grandmother, Andrea Courtney. My granddaughter did nothing to no one to be the one that had to be buried. According to the Gun Violence Archive, in 2019, more than 3,700 children and teens died or were injured in gun incidents. The toddler could not be safe. Even in the safety of homes, kids are getting their hands on guns, hurting others or themselves. When the little boy found a gun legally owned by his father in a TV stand and accidentally shot himself in the head. Kids find guns uh, in their parents' homes all the time. If the only change we made in this country was to say, uh, we're not going to let children get access to guns. Everybody who has a gun in a home where children could access it, they're going to lock that gun up. More than half of the school shootings that have occurred since Columbine, they would not have happened. Back at the playground in Watertown, Bill Lavin says beyond politics, we have to find common ground and break ground to turn the trend. He says the families of Sandy Hook victims want that too. You know, we should be able to figure it out. I think that's what their hope is, to prevent another family from going through what they had to experience. The United States has had over 750,000 COVID deaths, but that's only half the story. For every life lost, there are relatives and friends left scarred. For many of them, the pain is not going away. ABC's Sherry Preston has a story from our special COVID-19, Toll on America. Sharonda Johnson is still recovering from the day last summer that her 62-year-old father died of COVID. She wasn't allowed into the hospital room to say goodbye, and she remembers it as one of the toughest things she's ever done. It was hard because I couldn't touch him. I couldn't tell him how much I loved him or how much he meant to me or how good of a father he was to me. And it was difficult because it was the first aha moment I had about how many other people were suffering because on that floor I could see all of these other patients. Sharonda is an Air Force veteran who has actually counseled others when their loved ones passed away. When it was her father, though, it was so unexpected it seemed more than she could bear. She says months later she's still suffering the consequences. If you ask me what triggers me with grief, I could tell you some things right now off the top of my head. And that's only because I have a history of mental health treatment because I'm a combat veteran. But if I wasn't a combat veteran with that experience, I probably wouldn't be able to tell you these things are triggers for me. Sharonda's experience is unique to her, but it's something that many other people have been struggling with throughout the pandemic. And for people of color, it's been even more profound. According to APM Research Lab, when age is taken into account, black Americans are more than twice as likely to die from COVID-19 as compared to white Americans. With so many families losing loved ones, health experts warn of a potential crisis in the African-American community. Prolonged grief disorder. ABC News medical contributor Dr. Misha Reja explains what it is. Usually it's symptoms longer than a year after a loved one has died. And the symptoms could be um, persistent depression, anxiety, but they can also have flashbacks, terrible dreams. Um, they can, uh, you know, walk into a room and think that their loved one is there when they're not. And it really impairs their ability to function. It impairs their ability to go back to work, to interact with family. It's just profound, deep sadness. And that profound sadness is compounded, Dr. Reja says, by structural racism which is defined by the Urban Institute as the historical and contemporary policies 
practices and norms that create and maintain white supremacy. Healthcare is a human right. And in order to provide healthcare, we need to address structural racism. So what that looks like is uh, their ability to, one, access to medical care, but also things like housing, employment, family support, access to things like social security and Medicare and Medicaid. If they, if they lose their jobs, what kind of income support do they get? And um, also then it extends into things like general, generational wealth. So the ability to buy property and retain your investment and not just live paycheck to paycheck. Something else that compounds the symptoms of prolonged grief disorder is the hesitancy to reach out and ask for help. It could be the stigma that comes with mental illness and depression, but that's not all. It's shown in the literature that having a medical provider that looks like you is huge. So when an African-American person has grief and they weren't able to bereave in the way that they normally should, um, and they don't have an African-American provider, that actually shows to uh, inhibit their ability to process their grief. I asked Sharonda Johnson about that idea that she might be more willing to talk to someone who looked like her. She said that's true. Yes, looks like you, but understands you culturally. That's really that's really the piece um, I would say for anyone. You want someone that's going to understand you culturally. You know, there's certain things about, as you know, as an African-American, if I talk about, you know, we had, we got together and had dinner. If I'm talking to another African-American, they know I'm probably eating soul food. <laughs> there's just certain <laughs> things, you know, that because you grew up in this culture, that are normal to you. And when you consider that only 5% of medical doctors and clinical psychologists in this country are black, it's very hard to find someone who understands you culturally. So how do you solve that? One of the ways is we need to establish early pipelines. So we need to start it from middle school. We need to start it from high school because a lot of other races are getting their legs up from these high school programs that are already geared to math and science and they feed into college. And by the time you're a freshman in college, people already need to know that they're going into medicine. As for Sharonda Johnson, she is choosing to remember her father the way he was. My dad was strong. He was full of life. He was, you know, the life of the room. That was my dad. So to think that, I mean, like my hero, the strongest person I know, to think that they would die this way or any way, you don't walk around thinking that. A small, socially distanced memorial service for her father at Dover Air Force Base near her home helped. But she says she thinks her grief, like the grief of millions of others during the pandemic, will last for some time. The 2021 Year in Review was produced by Leighton Schneider. I'm Alex Stone, ABC News. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.